I mean, I don't, I don't know how, I mean, I'm guessing we all kind of know, but maybe you haven't thought about how hard it is to actually stand up in front of a room full of people that you may or, you know, may not know and sort of lay out your vulnerabilities, right? Sort of lay out your, this is what wasn't working. This is what we were afraid of. This is what I was asking God. I mean, it's really easy to stand up and tell our triumph stories, but it's really hard to tell the part before we get there. And so um, I'm honored that uh, the Haddocks will stand up and share that. And I hope you understand the, the importance of that as community, to be able to not wear masks and pictures and roll in here holding hands like everything's perfect, but to realize there's a lot of things that lead up to these moments where we look at God and we say, what are you doing and why are you not answering me? And that sort of vulnerable, real relationship is who we're called to be as the church. It's this, this picture of authenticity. And I tell people all the time that I don't really care as a church if we ever grow to be 500 or 1,000. We don't care about having anything other than just being absolutely and totally authentic. And we want to be authentic in our pursuit and movement towards God. And if that means we ask a lot of questions and we yell a lot of things out in frustration and fear, then that's kind of what it means. Um, but we're not going to paint a picture that says, we figured this thing out. Because the truth is, none of us have. And their expression is really this, this movement with God of saying, God, I don't understand what you're doing, but somewhere along the way, I have to be at a place where I just trust you. I just trust you. So I love that story. And adoption is such a beautiful picture of what God has done for us, that he has grafted us into the covenant family, um, that we have become part of his called and chosen people because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And what we're going to see today as we open the book of Acts, interestingly enough, is Paul sort of laying out his vulnerable heart as well um, and kind of a, a unique connection that we got to hear with Curtis in April is Paul laying out his true heart, being truly exposed and laying out his sort of deepest moments for everybody to see. So for those of you that are here for the first time, we've been in this kind of long journey to the book of Acts. We're coming into the home stretch. We take our teaching through the Word of God very seriously around here. We, we love to explore it. So we've been working through every verse um, of every chapter. We've made it all the way to chapter 26 over the past couple of years. And we are, are moving quickly now through Scripture because they are broad strokes. And we're actually going to cover an entire chapter today because... It's the trial that Paul's standing on in front of King Agrippa. Now, for those of you who haven't been here, I'm not going to recap very much. You, you can go online and listen to all the, the messages online and catch all the backstory. Greg Taylor does a great job of getting those up pretty much every Sunday right after church. And so you can catch some of that backstory. But the quick version is Paul's been in jail for about two years, a little bit more than two years, actually. He's been in jail in an area called Caesarea, which was about 70 miles towards the coast from Jerusalem. He had returned to Jerusalem in a really hostile environment, had been arrested, nearly killed by the Jews, transported to Caesarea to stand trial before Governor Felix. Governor Felix was this corrupt dude. All he cared about was himself, and, and he was a, it was a kind of a messed up guy. And he put Paul on trial, and the Jews brought all their high-powered attorneys, and they came, and they tried to press charges against Paul that would lead to his death. But Felix was like, he hasn't really done anything that wrong. And he's a Roman citizen, and Felix knew that if he kind of falsely convicted him, then he could be punishable by death. But he also knew if he released him, then the Jews were going to revolt. And he was in a really tight spot. And since he didn't know what to do, he just left Paul in jail. He was like, I don't know how to handle this, so you can just stay here. So Paul stayed in jail for two years until Felix was called back to Rome because apparently Caesar was not real happy with the way he was handling things. He was going to have to stand his own trial. And a new guy by the name we learned two weeks ago by the name of Festus 
comes in. Governor Festus takes over. We don't know much about him. He dies two years into office, but we know he's much more just than Felix was because Felix was just a criminal. Well, Festus comes in, and he goes straight to Jerusalem, and he looks because he inherits this two-year problem of Paul. He goes straight to Jerusalem, and he gets a Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling court together, and he looks at him. He says, hey, why is everybody so mad at this guy? And they rehearse the same charges and say, look, why don't you transfer Paul here and we'll take care of it? Because they had a plot. They were going to try and murder Paul on the journey from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And Festus says, no, I can't do that. But you guys come down to Caesarea. We'll hold another trial. So they all parade down to Caesarea and they put Paul on trial again. And they kind of go through all these same charges and they can kind of lay these things out there. And every one of those three charges they laid out, we've talked about for the past few weeks, are punishable by death. Well, Festus is there, and he doesn't see anything wrong with what Paul's done either. And so he's in the same pickle that Felix was, which means if I release him, the Jews are going to revolt, and they were a huge kind of population of people, and we couldn't have that. But also, if I convict this guy who's innocent, then I'm going to be held accountable by Caesar. And so he's sort of in a place where he's stuck as well. So in the last sort of turn of events, Festus says, I've got an idea. Why don't I get Paul to voluntarily say he'll go to Rome and stand, or go to Jerusalem and stand trial? And if I can do that, then I can eliminate my own responsibility. And so he looks at Paul and he says, here's what I want you to do. Will you just go to Jerusalem and stand trial before the Jews? Just waive your rights as a Roman citizen and go. And Paul says, no, I'm not going to do that because they're going to kill me. So I want to stand before Caesar. And he declares that he wants to go to Rome. Now, because Paul was a Roman citizen, Roman citizens had a right on death cases, cases that were facing um, the death penalty, to appeal their case before Caesar. And so Paul, knowing that right, and Festus, knowing he had that right, says, okay, if you want to go before Caesar, then Caesar, you will go. All right. And so we sort of left off there the past few weeks. Well, King Agrippa comes to town, and King Agrippa is actually um, in charge of the whole area, so a much bigger region than Governor Festus was, and he comes in town to pay his respects to Governor Festus. He wants to show him, hey, I want to, you know, kind of pay attention to you and let you know that you're important, but I'm a little bit more important. And so he comes to town with his sister Bernice. We talked about this last week. And his sister Bernice, I mean, I told you, there are a lot of rumors going around. You can love your sister, but you can't love your sister. And so he was loving his sister. And so a lot of people thought he was just crazy and weird. But they came to town, and he was King Agrippa II. He was part of the Herod line. His father was King Agrippa I, who we met in Acts 12. And his great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who was in charge when Jesus was born. And they were Jews um, that were elevated to power by the Romans. And they played both sides of the fence all the time. They played the Jewish side, but they were loyal to the Roman Empire, right? So King Agrippa comes to town, well-versed in the case of Paul. And Festus says, I got this problem. And King Agrippa says, well, I want to hear about it because I'm fascinated with this case of Paul. And that's where we left off last week. They have basically assembled this group of people, King Agrippa, uh, Bernice, Festus, this entire military court, all these high-ranking officials, and they entered the room with this incredible pomp and their robes and their crowns, and they gathered in this room of the most important people in the whole area and city, all adorned because the Romans loved pageantry. They all enter this room, and they bring in Paul in chains, and he's standing before them, and Paul is going to be put on trial again for the third time, this time before King Agrippa. And Paul's defense I find incredibly fascinating. It's different than what he's done uh, all the other times up until now, and it's going to expose his true heart and I think ask us several questions about our own lives. So if you've got your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 26. I know that was a lot, but 
tell you every week, understanding these things in context is really important. If we just think that Paul's standing in front of the court, that's one thing. But if we understand what led him there and all the questions that he's had and the history that's led us up to there, it's really important. So Paul's standing in front of this court. We're in Acts chapter 26. And let's turn there. And before we do, as we always do, let's take a moment. Let's pray. And let's invite God to teach our hearts this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is timeless. God, I thank you that it is true. And I thank you that it is worthy. Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning. That you would instruct our heart. God, we don't, we don't come to know you. Uh, we don't learn anything on our own. You are the revealer of all truth, God. And so we ask that you would reveal to us your heart. You would reveal to us truth. You would teach and instruct our hearts. Take a moment right where you sit and just in the sort of the stillness of your heart, ask God to teach you this morning, just to teach you something, speak to your heart. Just ask God to to teach you. Take a moment and pray for someone around you. Be in the habit of praying for other people. We do this each week as a reminder that this whole thing is not just about me. Be in the habit of praying for each other. Pray that God would move in that person next to you or in front of you or behind you, even if you don't know their name. Just, just pray for them. Lord, we ask that you would teach your hearts this morning. God, we love you, and we thank you for Jesus. Amen. So chapter 26, we're going to move through this but because I want to kind of cover it all because it's all one big trial. And it's actually kind of a short chapter. But, but Paul is standing in this, what they call an audience room, which is kind of like a courtroom, but it's packed with people. And at the very front of it is King Agrippa and his quote-unquote sister wife, Bernice. And they are dressed really well in all their purple robes and crowns and stuff. And then you have Governor Festus, who's in a scarlet robe because governors wore scarlet on such an occasions. And they're all dressed up and they entered the room to trumpets and entourages. And in the room, we learned last week, are military officials and aristocrats and really important people. And then they bring in Paul, all right? And Festus says to everybody, I need your help because I'm going to send this guy to Caesar, who was Nero at the time. And Nero was a horrible, horrible ruler. In fact, he has such a hatred for Christians that when you read about the persecutions in the Bible or when you read about the first century persecutions, usually they're all at the hand of Nero, who was throwing them into gladiatorial rings and throwing Christians to the lions and all these kind of things. And so, so Nero is, the, is a Caesar, and I've got to send him to Nero, but I don't really know what to tell him because there's nothing wrong that he's done. And so essentially, we're going to put him on trial again and hear his story. So this is what happens. Paul's standing in front of them. And then Agrippa, verse 1 of chapter 26, said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand, and he began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of the religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise that this is this is the promise 
Our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put, my, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. And in my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. And about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me, and I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then King Agrippa I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and to the Gentiles also I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove the repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here to testify to the small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense and said, You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, he replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice. Because it was not done in the corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul replied, short time or long, I pray that God, not only you, but that all who are listening to me may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with him. And they left the room, and while talking with one another, they said, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man should be set free if he had not already appealed to Caesar. All right, long, long story to get us to a couple of places. Paul is standing before this room full of highly kind of appointed, important people, aristocrats and military leaders and kings and governors, and he's standing there in chains, right, having been in jail for over two years. And King Agrippa motions, and everybody goes silent, and they look at Paul and say, you may present your defense now. <clears throat> and so Paul kind of, kind of says some nice things about Agrippa, saying, look, I know that you want to hear what I have to say because you will understand what has unfolded. He's a, a kind of appealing to his Jewish nature. And he's saying, you're familiar with these stories. You have heard about Jesus. You are familiar with what I've been doing. In fact, you are familiar with the customs that I'm about to talk about. And you can ask anyone, ask any of the Jewish people, that from the very beginning of my life, I was set apart to be a part of the strictest class 
of rulers in Jerusalem as a Pharisee. And I studied, and I was educated, and I did all that I was supposed to do, and I kept it to a T. And you can ask any of them. They have known me for an incredibly long time. But what is more is that I was so passionate that I believed that I needed to do anything I could to oppose the name of Jesus. He goes, here's what I even did. He goes, I went around to these different places, and I would arrest believers, people that followed Christ. I would arrest them. And I would have them put on trial. And when we all voted to have them killed, I would cast my vote for their death. I went around to the synagogues and I persuaded, right? I persuaded people to blaspheme against God because that was a punishable by death crime. I would torture them or persuade them until they said something against the name of Yahweh. And then I would vote to have them killed. In fact, my zeal, My obsession, he calls it, was so strong that I would even go outside the city and I would go to foreign cities and I would find the believers there and I would do the same thing. And he goes, on one such of those journeys, I had this encounter with Jesus and he tells his story again. Now, this is the third time we've heard Paul's story. Luke records it in 9 as it happened to Paul, and then he records it in 22 as Paul stands before that angry mob on the, Ro- on the steps of the Roman army barracks. This angry mob wants to kill him. And he says, let me tell you about my life. And he explains it to him, and he shares his salvation story again. Well, this is the third time we see him do it, this time before King Agrippa. And he's basically saying, look, this, this sound, this light, it all happened. And then Jesus spoke to me in Aramaic and knocked me to the ground, and he told me what he was going to do. That he was sending me to not only share the gospel with the Jewish people in Jerusalem, my own people, but he was sharing, sending me to share the gospel with the Gentiles. And he goes, King Agrippa, that's exactly what I did. I wasn't going to be disobedient to this vision from heaven. And Festus just jumps up, right? He's absolutely had enough. And he goes, you are absolutely crazy. All of your learning, Paul, has made you insane. Because think about what Paul was saying, Right? God had audibly talked to him that Jesus had been raised from the dead, that he wasn't on trial because he was doing anything wrong. He was on trial because he believed that God had raised Jesus from the dead and he believed in the resurrection. And Festus, who was neither a Jew but was, a, a, was not a Jew, was a Roman who probably believed in a multitude of gods, is hearing Paul talk about this God that raises from the dead. Because you remember last week how he explained the problem to King Agrippa? You know what he said? He goes, you know, when they pressed the charges against Paul, it wasn't what I expected. He goes, I was kind of expecting a sort of a, a legal battle, but they were arguing about whether this guy G, named Jesus was alive or dead. That's what, what Festus thought this was all about. And essentially, he was pretty right. And he stands up and he says, you are absolutely crazy. All of your learning, which we're not going to argue that you're educated, has made you crazy, man. And Paul goes... Most excellent Festus. Like, I'm not crazy. What I'm saying is reasonable and true. Ask him. And he points to Agrippa, this sort of moving thing. And he says, Agrippa, you know all this. You're familiar with these customs. And I'm not saying anything new. I'm actually saying what Moses and the prophets have already said in scriptures would happen. That the Messiah would come and would suffer and would be raised from the dead. This is not a religious sect that I made up. This isn't a new religion. This is the completion of what was foretold in Scripture. And he looks at Agrippa, and in this moment he says, King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? 
And I'm telling you, you would have got a gasp from the courtroom. Because it was, it was an accusation more than anything else. Because it put Agrippa in a spot where either he had to, in front of all these Roman people, had to say, yes, I believe in the prophets of Jewish people because he was Jewish. Or no, I don't. Denying his own heritage and own faith. And most likely what he, on some level, believed. Crowd's just listening, right? What is he going to say? Well, before he could even get an answer out, Paul answers his own question. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? And he goes, and I know you do. Well, Agrippa's no dummy, right? And he looks at Paul and he goes, hey, what do you think? In such a short time, little man, you are going... Because remember he had crooked legs, and we talked about this last week. He's a small guy. Are you going to persuade me in such a short time to become a Christian? Do you really think that's how this is going to work? And then in Paul, in that moment, Paul's heart is kind of exposed, and we'll get to this in a second. He says, short time or long, here's what I pray. I pray that you and everybody that can hear me would become what I am except for these chains. And he probably holds up his wrists and he's got handcuffs on and whatnot. Except for these chains. Well, Agrippa's had enough and he stands up and Bernice and Festus and they walk outside and they look at each other and they're standing around talking and and Agrippa says, look, I don't think he's done anything. Certainly not punishable by death and most likely not even for being put in jail. In fact, we should probably set him free if he hadn't already appealed to Caesar. So Agrippa, knowing how the laws worked in that Roman culture, knew that he couldn't supersede Paul's kind of declaration for an appeal. And so he says, so send him to Caesar. You know, Paul makes his defense a lot. I mean, we've kind of seen, this is now the third trial we've seen Paul on in just a matter of of weeks. This actually took place two years in history, right? Uh, Four, if you really want to call the sort of trial he had with Lysias, the Roman commander, but three real kind of legal trials in a matter of two years. And two years prior, after Paul had nearly been killed at the, hands of the Rome, at the hands of the Jewish people outside the temple court, laying in bed or on the floor in the Roman army barracks, remember that night two years ago, Jesus comes himself and stands near to Paul and says this, take courage, because as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you're going to have to testify about me in Rome. And two years goes by, and Paul's still in jail. <clears throat> And he stood trial time and time again. And we get to this third trial, and I find it really interesting, Paul's defense here. Because Paul, in this moment, kind of dives into this intensely vulnerable place where he exposes his heart. There's a bunch of things we could lift out here, but there's really just two things I want to make mention of, just for the sake of time this morning, that I think are really important. It sort of moved my heart. And for the sake of just remembering them, we're going to just call them the confession and the confrontation. I love how this defense begins. Because Agrippa says, okay, you're free to speak on your own. And then Paul begins his defense by essentially confessing his deepest and darkest sin and failures. Now, I want you to think about for a minute what Paul has done. I want you to think about his life before Christ. I mean, we sort of tongue-in-cheek it away. But I really want you to think about what he explains here. In verse 9, he says, look, I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus. And that's what I did. On the authority of the chief priests, I put the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I voted against them. I went from one synagogue to another, and I punished and tortured, trying to get people to blaspheme so that we could kill them. 
In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities. Now read between the lines of what Paul did. Paul's life before Christ involved going and arresting the innocent, shattering families, taking fathers out of the home and throwing them in jail, taking mothers out of their home, away from their children and putting them in prison, knowing full well that these people proclaimed that Jesus is God, which was blaspheming, which was punishable by death by the Jewish people. And when the death sentence came up, which was death by stoning, I voted to have him killed. Essentially, Paul is saying, I am the movement that murdered people because I'm the one that went and got them, drugged them through the streets, threw them in jail, and then when we had a legal vote, I voted for their death. Paul is responsible for dozens and dozens, if not more, of the deaths of Christians. The murdering of fathers and mothers and children, all because these people claimed to believe in Jesus, and Paul was obsessed with ridding the earth of anyone that proclaimed those names. And he would go from synagogue to synagogue and find the people that proclaimed Christ, and he would try and get them to trip on their words so that they would say something against God so that he could arrest them and have them killed. This is Paul's past, his deepest, sinful, broken past. Can you imagine, just for a moment, the guilt that is wrapped up in Paul's heart, the memories that are wrapped up in his heart? As he walks these three kind of missionary journeys over 11 years, all those roads that we explored about a couple of months ago, how many times Paul has recalled in his head what he has done? I mean, think about your failures. Think about the things that you've done wrong and the ways that you've failed and the greatest mistakes of your life and the regrets that you have. I'm guessing, and I'm just guessing, that most of ours don't hold a candle to the murdering of dozens of people, the tearing apart of families, right? Can you imagine the heartache that Paul is living with. But somewhere along the way, something remarkable happens in Paul. Somewhere along the way, Paul begins to believe this forgiveness that is found in the death and resurrection of Christ. It doesn't take away all that he's done. But somewhere along the way, that forgiveness has wound itself into his story to where Paul's able to share his vulnerability as part of God's glory. And I bet, and I'm just guessing, but I bet there, are, there were tears and there were heartaches that were shed for Paul. Because Paul loved people. We can read it all through his letters. Knowing what he had done and pleading with God to forgive him. All the failures. Deepest and darkest exposed. And he stands here before this room of people and he says, you want to know about failures? You want to know about hurt? You want to know what I have done? Let me share with you. But somewhere along the way, the forgiveness that he talked about and proclaimed, he began to believe for himself. And I don't know when that happened, but somewhere in his story, he began to believe the forgiveness that he proclaimed was in Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, we believe in forgiveness. 
We believe that God's grace is wrapped up through Jesus' blood shed on the cross, and we believe it, and we believe it for other people. We believe that God forgives and he has forgiven them for whatever it is that they've done, but believing it for people and believing it for ourselves are very different things. Because I live in my head. I know the things that I've done. I know the failures I have. I know the way I've hurt people. I know the things that I have engaged in. And forgiving myself or believing that God's forgiveness is for me is extremely difficult. I can believe it for everybody else. But believing it for yourself, well, that's a different story. Somewhere along the way, in this moment of confession, right, is, I mean, years and years after Paul's first experience on the road to Damascus, somewhere in that time, Paul began to believe that that was true for him, that he was forgiven by Jesus, and that his biggest failures were going, going to be a part of God's glory, even as he recalls them and recounts them and tells the world. As painful as that must have been time and time again. Let me tell you this. God loves you, deeply loves you. He knows. He knows what you've done. He knows what you've thought. He knows the deepest and darkest failures of your life, the things that no one else in this room has ever even heard you utter out loud. He knows the things that you wish would just go away. He knows the things that you regret the deepest and the most. But God's promise is that in Jesus Christ, we have new life and forgiveness. It doesn't take away the hurt, and it doesn't take away the reality, but it takes away the guilt because we have been set free from that. When we continually beat ourselves up over our past failures, we're essentially saying to God that either your forgiveness is not real or it's not good enough, and they're both lies. When we continue to bash our hearts for the things that God has freed us from, we're saying, God, your forgiveness is not real or it's not good enough for me. And they're both untrue. God's forgiveness is real and it is enough. And it's time that we began to believe those truths and let God enter our failures as part of our story of his grace and his goodness. But we're not raised that way in church culture. We're raised to stand up and talk about how great everything is. How was your weekend? It was amazing. Right? How's life? It's great. It's good. Everything's wonderful. But the truth is everything's not always wonderful. We're raised in a culture of rhetorical questions. The church is no different. We put on our best because we don't want to be the only ones standing out here wondering why everything in my life is collapsing and everybody else seems to have victory parties all the time, and I can't even pay my bills. Or my wife wants to leave me. Or my children, I mean, they're a mess. And it's probably my fault. And I don't know what to do. We don't live that way. Part of this confession moment for Paul, I think, is letting your failures be a part of God's great redemptive story in your heart. But you've got to believe it first. So we got this confession. The last thing I'll kind of mention is this sort of confrontation, which I think is really, it's not really a confrontation, it just was a C word. It's more of a kind of an 
encounter, right? It's kind of, a, kind of a strict dialogue, if you will. But Paul's standing there after having laid all this out. And Festus is like, you're crazy. And he's like, I'm not crazy. Agrippa knows this is true. And he looks at Agrippa and he says, you believe in the prophets. I know you do. And Agrippa says, what do you think you're going to convince me to become a Christian in such a short time? And in that moment, unrehearsed, right, and imperfect as it is, I think Paul exposes his true heart. Because you've got to remember, Paul's on trial for his life. If Agrippa decides that he's guilty, he's going to be punished by crucifixion because that's how the Romans killed people. So Paul's on trial for his freedom for the third time. And he stands before Agrippa, and he's got Agrippa backed into a corner, right? I don't know if any of you remember that scene from A Few Good Men. But you, did you order the code red kind of moment, right? And he's basically yelling at him saying, I know you believe in the prophets. And Agrippa's on the edge. And he says, you think you can make me become a Christian? And in that moment, unrehearsed as it is, Paul says, this is what I pray. Not for my freedom, not for you to let me go, not so that I can go and tell even more people, but this is what I pray, that you and everybody that can hear my voice, right, would become what I am. Except for these chains, right? I don't want you to be in jail. But I want you to become what I am. Here's what I started thinking. What is Paul? Is he a Christian? Of course. But what is Paul really? If we look at his confession, Paul is a broken, sinful, failure of a man who was rescued by Jesus Christ, whose failures and sin are all still very real and very deeply painful. But somewhere along the way, he has believed in the forgiveness that comes from Christ. You know what Paul is? He's a broken man that has been freed by Jesus. And this is Paul speaking to a room of people that have accused him, that are trying to kill him. He doesn't want them to get what they deserve. He wants them to become what he is, which is free from the guilt and the pain and the lies that we have bought into. I want you to become what I am. And I started thinking about this for a minute because I started thinking, <clears throat> in this moment, Paul's real heart for people is exposed. Not himself, doesn't care about his freedom. He wants every person in that room to know the freedom that has come in Christ. Because as we just heard, his life was a broken train wreck of guilt and hurt and shame and death and imprisonment. And he wants the whole world to be free from that. And more specifically, everybody in that room. And I started thinking about how many times in my life have I sat in a crowded room coffee shop, amusement park, whatever, wherever you are, and looked around and had your heart break for the people that are there that are oblivious to their own spiritual death. Most of us are caught up in our own lives and our comfort. Most of us are infatuated or obsessed with this circle of six feet around me. Paul's heart, as he was sent by Jesus, was to long for that broken world to know that Jesus has set him free and could set them free. Paul wasn't trying to win people because he wanted a feather in his Christian cap to say, look how many Christians we have. Paul was a confessing, broken, sinful person that has done unimaginably worse than you and I, most likely. 
and he wanted them to become what he was, which is a guy that somewhere along the way had believed that forgiveness was for him through Jesus. You know what I want my life to be? I want my life to be that. Like I want people to be what I am because that picture of Paul, that's a picture of my life. Deeply failing all the time, wrestling with whether or not to be able to forgive myself yet, believing that that forgiveness is real but struggling with fully accepting it but knowing somewhere deep inside that God loves me that much. I want people to know that. I want you to know that. I want you to become what Paul is. As a church, this should be what drives us outside of these doors. It should drive us into the world, into our workplaces, and to our family to say, listen, I want you to become what I am. Not because being a Christian is great, but because being a Christian is freeing. And I know that you are walking with hurt and guilt and brokenness and shame, and I want you to be free from that. That should drive us out these doors. Exposing our own vulnerability, believing in the forgiveness of Jesus, and having a deep and desperate desire that the world, including your family, your own mom and dad, your own brother and sister, would know that freedom to be released from their own bondage of hatred of themselves and their sin or their failure or their whatever. To stop beating themselves up for all of our past mistakes and regret and live in the freedom that knows from, comes from Christ. And Paul says, I want you, everyone who can hear my voice, to become what I am. Make that the cry of your heart. Let me be the cry of our heart. That we have been set free. And we want everyone to experience that same freedom in Christ. Vulnerability, authenticity, all given freely by the Redeemer of all of our brokenness. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the moments to gather in this place together. The imperfections that make up our lives. God, the the deep imperfections that made up Paul's, the deep imperfections that make up mine. Father, I know there are people in here that are dealing with a lot of regret, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. We have broken things in our lives from moral things to financial things to whatever. A lot of those things we would never say out loud. We say out loud, they become real. We're trying as hard as we can to suppress them anyway. But you know them. You know they're there, God. You see them. You know every thought on our heart before we even speak it or think it. Yet we try and run from you. We try and hide. But God, your grace is so beautifully redemptive that even knowing all those things about us, you love us anyway. And you have forgiven us. And as much as we hear that for everybody else, God, help us believe it for ourselves that we have been forgiven by Jesus and that you can take our failures and our struggles and you can make them part of your redemptive, beautiful story. 
And then God, give us a heart that the world might know that same freedom, that they might become what we are, not because we have figured anything out or we're perfect, but because you have forgiven us and we can live in freedom. And I don't want to see people walking with guilt and hatred and bondage and chains. God, the single greatest thing that's ever happened in my life is believing that you have set me free. And I want the people in this room to know that. And as Paul says, I want you to be what I am, broken and sinful, freed by Jesus. Lord, push us out these doors to proclaim that truth. Let us 